Tonight's reading is from Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. Please follow along either on the sheet or on the screen. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Are we? Okay, there we go. Um, so, a couple things. Jejun, sorry about our miscommunication. There is actually an event <laughs> for cleaning up for Habitat. We need to put that on the, you know, that's my fault. Um, also, I wanted to announce, I don't know if he's still here. Um, Hudson, you're in the back over there. North Cross Church has brought some snacks for us, and I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that. And uh, I'll tell you afterwards, to, when you go attack those snacks, that uh, perhaps you can uh, curb your enthusiasm and go talk to Hudson a little bit, too. Uh, and say thanks. All right. So uh, my name is Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship, RUF, as it's known. Uh, I'm going to trip over this chair. It's also my name. All right. So uh, it's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus of Davidson, but also you all, wherever and whoever you are, and however you are. And we really mean that. We don't want to be a place that just represents one scene on campus. We want anyone from any scene on campus to feel welcome here. And we also want anyone from any personal background to feel welcome here. And we mean that. And so, uh, especially if you're new, I just want to say thanks for coming. And uh, we're really excited that you're here. And then also, um, if I don't know you, I'd love to get to know you. So um, I'd love to, if you could stick around for like a couple seconds afterwards, I'll try to beat you to the door. We'll see who wins. Uh, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can get out of here if you need to. <laughs> okay. um, so also, there's a lot of students that want to get to know you too. So if you would say hello to them. Usually, I'd also announce our interns, but they're at training um, in Atlanta. So you guys didn't know that we were that fancy, but we are. <laughs> so Eric and Maddie uh, will be back next week. So this semester in large group, uh, we're looking at the topic of relationships uh, and my sort of subtitle for that is, what, what does Jesus have to do with our relationships, with our friendships and our families and our dating and our sex and our singleness and our marriage? What does he have to do with all of those relationship categories? Uh, and for the first four weeks, we kind of looked big picture at the storyline of relationships in the Bible. And uh, I call that the foundation of relationships. And then the last few weeks, we've begun to look at a smaller picture level at our relationships. Uh, we asked, what does it look like to remember the good and the bad? What does it look like to start to mend what's torn, what's ripped in our families and our friendships and even in our dating? 
And uh, that's actually where we're going to pick up. This is week two, part two of dating. Uh, got two weeks in the series. Uh, last week, recap, part one. I'll be really quick. We discussed how most of us long for, most of us look for, and will discover romantic union. And that really kind of, to summarize, we looked at why we date at all and who we date. So we looked at why we date and who we date. This week, um, we're going to look part two, and we're going to look at Colossians chapter two, and we're going to discuss how to date. How to date. A bold, ambitious topic. So as you're um, thinking about how I'm going to possibly handle that, let's pray uh, and direct all, all of our thoughts to God. Uh, Father, I need prayer. Um, it'd be foolish for me to think I can get up here and do this myself. Um, a monologue in the age of dialogues. Um, me talking um, in an age where everything's a roundtable discussion or, or a series of comments online. I pray that you would work. You'd work through this. That you'd spend this time together. That you'd reward the time that these students have put aside to be with you. That they'd feel different that they think differently, that um, you would help me to think and feel different. I pray that you'd meet us wherever we are with you, Jesus, um, whatever spiritual category we might put ourselves in. I pray that you would meet us. I pray that you'd meet us with our questions, with our doubts, with our longings, with our certainties. And I pray, Jesus, that you'd meet us in such a way that we knew who you were more so that we might see you high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. We ask for this mercy. We ask for this uh, carefulness with us. Uh, In your name, Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to begin by quoting uh, a singer-songwriter that I kind of quoted last week, uh, David Wilcox. David Wilcox has this live album, and if you haven't, I plugged it shamelessly two weeks in a row, so maybe you should go check it out. But David Wilcox's live album, and he describes what it feels like to first fall in love. Uh, It feels like, this is his analogy, it feels like a kid riding on a Ferris wheel for the first time. (laughs) So a kid riding on a Ferris wheel for the first time. You know, you feel like you're falling, 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 and then you're flying, 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 and all of a sudden, for some reason, the operator stops it at the top of the hill, and the wheel just stops, and then you're just swinging back and forth at the top of the Ferris wheel at the fair. And that sort of, you're just swinging in the night air up there. And you can see across your hometown, every part of it. And then uh, you can see farther than you've ever seen before in your entire life. And suddenly you've got this perspective you never had. You're above it all. All the schoolwork, all the career plans, all the family drama, all the loneliness are like these bright dots beneath your dangling feet. That first romantic ride is, like, is amazing. But what's more amazing is sometimes that the, way, the person that you fell for, the one you got on the ride with, that person can just weasel his way out of the ride in the middle of the night air and leave you hanging there. You ask yourself, where did she go? I mean, the bar is still latched. I mean, it's an easy ride to get into, according to David Wilcox, but it's hard. It takes a while to get back out of that ride. The heartbreak, the pain can feel like it will never end. Like you'll never get off that stuck and swinging romantic ride. 
I want you to listen to the way that David Wilcox puts it in the song, Spin. He talks about the build-up and the occasional letdown of dating in the song. It's the song, Spin. So you follow on, you tip right in, latch the bar, and you lean to feel the smooth touch of summer skin. Then it all starts moving like no one else can see you. Cupid pulls the lever and the whole thing spins. Suddenly your lover just climbs right out, steps across thin air and leaves you there. You try to catch your breath, but the bar is tight against your chest and the ride is spinning so hard it holds you in your chair. Well, that shiny ride was just eyes and skin to lead you on, to pull you in. It took you for a spin. Look, I know all of us are in extremely different positions about the topic of dating. For some, David Wilcox's song nails a personal experience of ours. We fell in love hard, and that special someone bailed when we least expected it. For others here, we climbed the stairs, we fell, and we flew for a bit in that relationship, but the, the lap bar felt a little bit tight, almost suffocating, and we were the ones that stepped out into the crisp summer night air and took off on that person, leaving them dangling up high. And then there are others of us who've just only heard about this kind of thing. We've never really had that kind of romantic uh, Ferris wheel ride. And so you've experienced exhilaration, the potential heartache secondhand. You watched a friend or an older sibling go through this. They disappeared for a few months. You asked, where are they? Are they ever going to come back? And then they came back with a story about flying and falling and swinging and spinning. But regardless, we're all kind of simultaneously left longing for, no matter where we've been, we're longing for and fearing romantic relationships in some way, shape, or form. We're longing to feel like we're flying and falling. We desire to see for miles upon miles, to be deeply understood, to be totally gotten, to be radically accepted. And also we're fearing the pain of it all not working out, getting suffocated or getting rejected we fear missing out on Davidson or post-Davidson opportunities or relationships. All while you're latched in and spinning so hard you're held in your chair. So wherever you are, even if you're just tired of me comparing your romantic love life to carnival rides, uh, last week I compared uh, dating to a roller coaster. <laughs> Some of you are like, come on now, Sid. Okay. <laughs> Is having a love life in college just like an eighth grade trip to Six Flags? Uh, we got to get back up, get some perspective, Druin. Uh, regardless of your personal experiences, we can all relate to the mystery at the heart of dating. These kind of unscripted life moments are exactly what Colossians chapter 2 is addressing. You see, situations like dating can feel so out of control, so full of fear and so full of delight at the same time. And for thousands of years, well-meaning people have typically given two solutions to this feeling. So the first solution is mystical asceticism. It's a fancy way of saying, don't date at all. Don't do it. You got to pursue a secret kind of knowledge, get above everyone. And then you got to, then you got to live for the ecstatic experiences in between. Or solution two, human regulations. Well, I guess you can date. But if you want it to work out, if you want to find the one, and if you don't want any permanent damage, you have to follow these specific don'ts about dating. 
In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, God, through Paul, is telling a young church in modern-day Turkey, and he's telling us, that these two solutions are not from God, and they're not helpful for us. Instead, we're to stand firm, holding fast to Christ Jesus and all the freedom that life throws at us. So in two sentences, not just one, two, Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23 says this, Dating is hard and confusing so that you rely on Jesus. Dating is hard and confusing so that you rely on Jesus. Therefore, don't avoid this freedom and Jesus. Don't avoid this freedom in Jesus by retreating from other people or by reducing dating to a plug and chug formula. So don't avoid the freedom of dating and Jesus by retreating from other people and reducing dating to a plug and chug formula. So Colossians 2 talks about properly handling mysterious freedoms like dating, but how? By dropping us into this big picture general discussion about how to live the Christian life. And there in that discussion, we see first a discussion of appropriate dating behaviors, verses 16 through 17. Second, we're going to see the false dating solution of mystical asceticism in verses 18 through 19. Third, we're going to see the other false dating solution of human regulations, verses 20 through 23. And then fourth, I know you're surprised, (laughs) there's another point. Uh, Fourth, a few ideas about how to date that rely on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, verses 19 through 20. That's on your handout, by the way. So if you're furiously taking notes, just look down on your handout. Um, let's begin with how we usually do. Let's begin at the beginning. And we're going to look at the first few verses, 16 and 17. And we're going to look at that discussion that's there of appropriate behavior in dating. Um, so before you raise your hand and, and interrupt me, clearly verses 16 and 17 are not directly about dating. <laughs> you're reading that furiously. You're going, where's he getting this? Um, I'll admit dating in the first century AD likely did not involve questions of food and drink festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. Okay, but these judgments on the church at Colossae were popular first century attempt to make sense of how to live. They were trying to understand all the freedom and all the newness of the Christian life. Dietary laws about food and drink structured meals. They structured friendships. They structured personal health. Holidays around festivals and new moons and Sabbath structured time, these people's time, whether it was yearly calendars or daily to-do lists, and when and how to have a good time. In the 21st century, we oftentimes operate under a different set of judgments on our daily choices. And sometimes we don't even know this, we just feel it. But these judgments still try to structure what's complicated and not spelled out clearly in life and reduce it down to something simpler. If you're single in the 21st century, which I'm guessing most of you are, um, last I checked, you've you've still got plenty uh, of often well-meaning judgments that you get on dating on a daily basis. Okay, you get those those dating judgments from friends and family, often well-meaning. The Christian subculture, if that's where you're coming from, and and very much everyone gets it from media outlets. (laughs) We get, Online dating sites, dating apps, magazines, movies, TVs, tells us how to date. 
And then the question becomes, how do we know who to listen to? Whose advice or whose judgments to take? What's right? How do we know how to date or how do we know how not to date? How to be single? I think verse 17 is telling us to return to the source, to return to the substance, to return to Jesus and his words, specifically in the Bible. But the problem with dating, like mealtimes and holidays, is that the scripture is so very silent about the topic. <laughs> silent, at the very least, it's unclear about the modern idea of dating, and so we find ourselves at a loss. Look, I'm going to give you this very straightforward application of the entire Bible, okay, in less than a couple minutes. <laughs> in terms of people and one-on-one -on -one relationships, there's a continuum that's in the Bible. And I'm going to do it left to right, so left to right, and I'm going to do it from, um, like, less or no romantic affection to most romantic affection. You ready? Here's how the Bible lays out your relationships, one-on-one. -on -one. Just throughout Old Testament, New Testament, whatever part. We have the enemy, okay? You hate each other. Pretty far left, okay? And then you have the stranger. By the way, left and right has nothing to do with politics. Okay. <laughs> I feel like it's a charged atmosphere. I have to say these things. Okay. Can we just use cardinal directions again? Is that okay? Okay. So you have the enemy. You hate each other. Okay. And then you have the stranger. You don't know each other. Then you have the acquaintance, you barely know each other. And then you have the friend, you actually kind of like each other. And then suddenly you've got engagement. You're preparing to be married. And then married, you're one flesh. Wait, what's missing? Okay, what's that gap between friend and engaged? There is no relational category for dating in the Bible. Okay, I'm going to say it over and over and over again in the sermon. Biblically, dating is not a noun. It's not a noun. It's, a, it's not a state of being or relationship status. They had no concept of, oh, you're dating. That wasn't in the Bible. There's no concept. Instead, it's at best a verb. Dating is at best a verb. Something you do. You date or dated or will date. And because the, the only way we can even infer this is that Dating is signaling a movement or a blurriness between two very stationary relational categories, between friendship and engagement. And there's that blurred space, that moving target between the two. So all of a sudden, we see the scary but exciting freedom of dating, right? All of a sudden, all the names we have for what's going on between you and that girl or you and that boy show themselves to be completely and absolutely made up. Okay. Dating, going steady, girlfriend or boyfriend, an item, significant other, partner, and most confusing, we're in a relationship. What? Yes, of course, you're in a relationship. Okay. All of these are trying to describe a relationship status that surely existed even in ancient Colossae, but which the Bible refuses to name as a relationship category. Okay. There's no relationship category for it. But if we don't have a agreed upon word for the romantic relationship somewhere between friends and engaged, if we don't have a relationship concept, a biblical relationship concept for dating that we can actually point to, how can we have a set of appropriate behaviors? 
Do you see the problem? We don't have roles. We don't have rules about how to proceed. The Bible is silent for how to be more than friends, but less than engaged. Which seems like a lot of college relationships. <laughs> but instead of embracing this freedom and occasion to trust Jesus for forgiveness and for wisdom, or looking into how Jesus describes what love is in his scriptures, instead of faith, well-meaning but false solutions enter into the picture. These two false dating solutions squelch the exciting freedom of not having to be something. And these two false dating solutions take advantage of the scary freedom of not knowing what to be. So, we see this first false dating solution in verses 18 through 19, mystical asceticism. This, by the way, is point two on your handout for those of you who are ninja note takers. Okay, mystical asceticism tells us we don't have to be needy. That's what the message is. False solution number one, don't be needy. We don't need other people. It tells us to kill our desires for community and especially our romantic desires. Look inside. It gives us spiritual permission to deny the existence of a longing for union that most of us have deep within us for other people. Many times, mystical asceticism repeats the old Gnostic lie. Our bodies are evil, and therefore all physical and emotional longings are just personal weaknesses. Our bodies are evil, and so therefore all the physical and emotional longings are just personal weaknesses. This inward-focused, self-isolating power move is often seen in two types of behavior. What I'm calling super-spirituality and super productivity. Super spirituality and super productivity. All right, so let's look first at those who think not dating, those who think fleeing the whole dating scene is actually super spiritual. Okay, I'm gonna pick on us for a while. According to a friend, and actually the former REF campus minister, David Speakman, super spirituality typically says something like this. If you're serious about knowing God and committing yourself wholeheartedly to his mercy for the poor, evangelism of the lost, or mystical presence, you will not, I repeat, not date. <laughs> because dating is a distraction from serving God. And it's selfish. And it's only for the weaker junior varsity Christians. Okay? Look, a few of you may have what the Bible calls the gift of singleness. For a long season or for a lifetime. I'm going to talk more about what the gift of singleness is later in the semester. But some of us really confuse this idea of the gift of singleness with this idea of being extremely afraid of getting relationally wounded. Or the seduction that we have for varsity sold out, super Christian, everything for God, radical singleness. <laughs> Verse 19 assures us that God's growth and nourishment are not dependent on kissing, dating, goodbye. And emotional, social, and romantic, and or romantic martyrdom. They don't depend on kissing, dating, goodbye, or any sort of emotional, social, or romantic martyrdom. God is a good heavenly father. He loves to give all of his children good gifts. <laughs> he doesn't give snakes and stones to the people who date and get married. <laughs> Okay, and he, he doesn't just give fish and bread to the humanly single, but only really married to God. No, 
We, all we must do is hold fast to Jesus. Ask and expect for Jesus' growth and nourishment in our lives. And we can do that as friends. We can do that while we're dating. We can do that engaged. And we can do that married. As well as doing that single. All right. Second reason. Some of you are like, that's not me. I know. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about what is the most prevalent at Davidson. The second reason not to date. That is the need to be super productive. The need to be super productive. Let me again turn to David Speakman, the former RUF at Davidson campus minister, for his wisdom. Super productivity typically says this. Dating means less time to actualize potential. Less freedom to make the most out of my career and gifts. I don't have time to date. I'm too busy with busyness. Personal goals, building my resume, assuming respectable responsibilities, and well, my future. Dating is for foolish romantic types, not serious students and serious leaders. I need to be free to make the most of myself. Look, contrary to popular belief, my goal is not to get you all married and soon. I know you're like, why is he doing this series on dating two weeks? Why is he talking like this? Why is he doing a whole series of relationships? That's not my goal. Hear me, you don't actually have to date. Okay, breathe if you need to breathe. Okay, nor should you feel the pressure to date. But I can't help but notice and I was here as a student and noticed it when I was a student and noticed it in my own life, that Davidson's desire for productivity at all costs, productivity at all costs has a real and often uncounted cost. And here's what it sounds like and looks like. Under-promising with someone else by doing friends with benefits. Friends with benefits, okay? You see, a denied longing for union will always come out sideways. So there's often an attempt to get intimacy without the time or the energy or the risk or the, of that commitment to someone. And this can look like pornography. This can look like hookup culture, but it could also look like that romantic relationship that never actually gets defined, that never gets named, that never actually gets honored as real and public. This can look physical and self-described as meaningless. This can look purely emotional and social and self-described as so meaningful. It can be in the dark, down the hill. It can be up the hill in the daylight. Need I go on with my green eggs and ham? Okay, so <laughs> lots of different renditions here, okay? In REF, we have this saying, and it's, and it's really a shocking statement. Um, you can't put a condom on your heart. You can't put a condom on your heart. <laughs> Okay, I know everyone's dying. Uh, it's graphic. Okay? But it gets on what's going behind the physical and emotional intimacy. What's going on behind the physical and or emotional intimacy? A form of romantic oneness that's socially real is going on. A form of romantic oneness that is chemically bonding is going on. And that's why when that undefined relationship with the boy or the undefined relationship with the, with the woman ends, it still actually really, really hurts. Okay. So if false asceticism is avoiding dating altogether and often slides into friends with benefits, human regulations is a false solution to dating's confusion that often slides into playing, engaged, or pretending to be married. Okay, so human regulations flies into pretending to be engaged or playing married. That's point three in your outline. So I'm going to define my terms. Human regulations means this. We try to take a complicated, ambiguous freedom 
and we make it simple and clear by reducing it down to a list of do's and don'ts. This is also called checklist Christianity. Checklist Christianity. It promises to make our lives easier by eliminating potential pain and heartache. How? By giving us good, easy-sounding physical boundaries. Right? You hear the rules like, don't touch people above the friendship bracelet or below the fanny pack. And you go, all right, I can do that. Check, okay? As if the Bible's wisdom could be condensed down to a don't touch these body parts chart. As if that's all the Bible's wisdom. Don't touch these body parts chart. Okay? As if all the potential hurt of dating only comes down to what we do physically. So the 10 rules or 10 step human regulations usually answer the question or try to answer the question, how far is too far? How far is too far? They don't ask the harder question like, why are we trying to see how much we can get away with, with a living, breathing human being? Okay. Or (laughs) here we go. Um, How can I best love and respect this other person? It's a great question. Or where does Jesus's idea of self-sacrificial love enter in? Or even, why is that no-go line keep going farther and farther back as I camp out at it and cross that line by accident over and over and over again? Or finally, why why are all these rules, why do they seem so basic, but why are they so very hard to keep? Why are all these rules so basic, but so very hard to keep? Look, the reason I crossed so many lines and so broke so many rules that I said I'd never do the reason that others cross these physical boundaries in dating is a false sense of security. All right? You've had the DTR. You've told who needs to know that you're in an exclusive relationship. <laughs> but then almost immediately in our own minds, we've moved directly from the biblical relationship of original status of friends or acquaintance to engaged or even married. Okay? Have you ever noticed how intense it is to date at Davidson? You notice this? I've been around block for a bit. Seems like every, after the DTR, there is this sudden set of expectations that descends on the couple. Okay? Each person should prioritize the other person's needs and wants at all times. His time and attention or her affections are no longer his or hers alone. They're now shared. And how when any of these, and how about like when any of these unspoken agreements, these requirements are broken? Right? Like, say free time was not cleared with the significant other first. There's this like subtle process of punishment that goes on. There's this sort of cold shoulder or the, the pout fest that eventually explodes into the heated discussion because no one fights or argues. <laughs> we just have heated discussions. Okay? <laughs> About inconsiderateness or the failure to be a good boyfriend or a good girlfriend. I mean, maybe you haven't had these personally. Maybe you had. Maybe you've at least roomed with someone who's had these on a regular basis. <laughs> Okay, friend and fellow pastor Les Newsom tells us why this is. That couple is over-promising. They're over-promising. They're playing house. They are pretending to be married. They're asking things from the other person that they have no right to ask of outside of marriage. The unquestioned right to his or her time or attention or talents or affections or performance. Remember, the dating relationship is not a binding covenant, right? It's a temporary, made-up relationship category. There was no public vow. 
even if it's on Facebook. <laughs> there is no oneness that makes him or her co-own the other person. It's not there. So while we don't always understand this with our bodies or our secrets or our friends or our emotions, it's so interesting that we seem to get this intuitively with our finances. When's the last time you saw a really serious couple merge Wells Fargo bank accounts? Okay. So, but all that dating seems to culturally require, all that it culturally requires does make it costly to date a Davidson. And that's why so few people actually want to do it. This is why people rarely actually ask people out on dates because it, the stakes are so very high. And why so many students choose to err on the side, again, of friends with benefits. Okay, so a lot of this sermon has deconstructed how most people date and don't date. And I just want to underline something that I'm telling you what I wish I'd heard in college, okay, at Davidson. Um, I did all of the above. And then so that's probably why I'm a college minister, um, that I've failed more times than you possibly could, okay? Uh, for instance, I spent a semester swearing off dating for spiritual reasons, my junior spring, um, only to end up with the same girl late at night on the lake campus, lying on her backs, looking at the stars, and whispering sweet nothings about beauty and family secrets over and over and over again. Okay, but I made sure every time that she knew at every turn that we were just friends. Okay, what a crushing self-deception. Okay, or the semester before that, junior fall, I dated a different woman at Davidson. Again, not my wife's here, just so no one goes there. Okay, I bitterly complained to her how I wasn't her priority on the Saturday. But then a few days later, just weeks later, I felt so personally drained by her emotional neediness because it was actually finals time. And so we broke up, okay? Again, I've done it and done it poorly. So for those still following along, <laughs> the takeaway thus far from Colossians chapter two and from my life now, okay, is this, the Bible has no hard and fast categories. The Bible has no hard and fast rules for dating okay but we make dating into friendship or we make dating into marriage and we try to act out the roles and the rules of friendship or the roles and the rules of date of marriage in dating see we try to make dating something it's not and then we try to act as if we're married or act as if we're just friends so how do i give you some how-to dating thoughts that are positive without turning it into human regulations. Fair enough, <laughs> okay? However, I'm gonna try. Let me give you three really brief thoughts um, that are derived from 12 years of being a college minister and then looking at modern college dating, four years of modern college dating myself, and then the Bible's description of how to love other people. Okay, thought one. How you start dating somebody actually matters. How you start dating somebody actually matters. Often people skip the friendship stage and go from acquaintance to dating like they're engaged and married. Okay, you know the DTR in the second long conversation? Okay, that is that many people start with sexual attraction and then go straight for the romance jugular. And we only investigate friendship after we have promised a marriage-like commitment of time and bodies and friends and thoughts and feelings 
that we can't possibly back up without a vow and without witnesses. Look, The Bachelor and Tinder, the app, are just exaggerated examples of this typical progression, right? Hot or not, swipe. Hot or not, give the rose. Do I feel something instantly? Next step, you get a rose again. Or, and then sure, we can now talk about what you believe and what your family's like, <laughs> now that we've got through those stages, okay? Instead, what if we started with friendship and then we moved into romance? When ready, we proposed to actually get married and engaged, and only after that cultivated sexual attraction. Look, of course, I'm not against chemistry, interpersonal chemistry, but I'm, I'm, I'm for a more robust kind of chemistry than a hotness radar can provide, okay? And, I'm, and that is certainly attractions included in that. And this isn't an excuse to stay in a friendship forever, right? There's a place for making things formal and mutually agreed upon and understood, even before the DTR is forced by the more intentional party. For instance, I'd love to see more casual dating on Davidson's campus. I wish I dated more casually on Davidson's campus. Can we reclaim the word dating and make it a verb again? Can we do that together? I think we can, okay? I, would, I, want, I want to do dating without long-term pressure and with zero obligation for more dates. This means people need to ask more people out on dates. And this means the other side needs to actually say yes to more dates. You see the impasse we're in? Okay. Each person needs to get more specific and honest about their intentions. Intentions that can't possibly involve knowing that you're going to marry someone out of the gates. Don't be honest that way. Okay. Biblical love, though, risks awkwardness and it risks potential rejection. But it also frees us from flirting mind games. And it also frees us from marriage-level dating expectations. This leads me to thought two. Thought two. We need to date with frequent and honest communication. It is okay for your romantic relationship to have a progress. Okay, to, to, have, to move from friendship to fun, non-committed dating. To dating with some romantic interest. To dating with definite romantic interest. To dating with exclusive romantic interest. And then also to, to engagement. But both sides need to communicate clearly and frequently and honestly as they progress. Why? Because what dating is is so ambiguous and so misunderstood, and it's always under-promising friendship and over-promising marriage. And because two people don't always feel growing attraction at the same time and to the same degree, okay, and so it's important to be able to talk about that and to learn to work through disappointment, okay? And not always take it as if it's your personal problem, that you're not attractive enough. Okay, this truth leads me to the last and perhaps most important thought, thought three, and I'll be done. The reason that the Bible in Colossians chapter two gives no specific guidance on dating is this, the Ferris wheel of excitement and fear and freedom of dating is an occasion to need Jesus personally. All of that stuff, the fear, the excitement, the freedom of dating is an occasion to need Jesus personally. So many of us get so worked up about dating because we're so afraid of screwing it up, right? Doing something wrong, missing out on that someone, the threat of consequences that will last. But this failure and this fear is exactly where Jesus likes to show up. Let me tell you a story. Some of you have heard it before. 
When I was new to Christianity, uh, sophomore summer, I heard a dating talk. New to Christian, new, newly Christian speaker talked about how we rush into intimacy too fast. And so um, we physically and emotionally misuse someone or ourselves. And as many of you know firsthand, it wounds both of us. And to make this point more graphic, maybe because he thought we were in high school, not in college. Anyway, he took a paper heart and he took a hole puncher. <laughs> True story. And he punched every time he talked about some sort of transgression or whatever, he took that paper clip and punched a hole into the paper heart. And it was every time he punched it, it was so silent that you could hear the clack of the metal and the tear of the paper in that room. And everyone's eyes would just sit there and silently follow that, that little paper dot as it swirled and twirled and fell floating to the floor. And then the speaker said something so foolish. He said, and these holes in our heart caused by sin can never be healed and they'll be with us forever. After this comment, he said a lot of other things I don't really remember <laughs> because I was stuck on what he said about the holes. Okay. Based on what the Bible actually says, um, I have finished for myself that dating talk. Here's how it finishes. Jesus shows up. Even in the worst dating moments, even when we get afraid, when we fail somebody, when we get rejected or we feel suffocated, when we run away, even in those moments of naked shame, then and there, that's exactly where Jesus shows up. And do you know what Jesus does to us when he reaches out and he shows up? Slowly but surely, Jesus bends down to the floor. He eases down onto his hands and his knees. He picks up the circular pieces of our hearts. And one by one, and ever so gently, Jesus presses those pieces back into place for forever. In the words of the writer Jonathan Merritt, I'm wounded, and while I have deep holes in my heart, they are not empty. They are filled with grace. I'm wounded, and while I have deep holes in my heart, they are not empty. They are filled with grace. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for some frank talk about dating. Uh, thanks for your ambiguity. <laughs> Thank you for the freedom. Thank you for the occasion to trust you. Um, deep down inside, I resent it, um, but I'm thankful for it because you're making me more like you. And I pray that you do that for a lot of students in this room, that in the midst of our clenched fists, that you'd open up our hands and help us to receive your kindness, the ways that you're taking care of us, that nothing is lasting and forever in your, in your hands, and that you'd help us to be free to make mistakes but you also help us free to turn to you and run to you, Jesus. We need you so much, more than we know. In your name, amen.